This is the interview show from the Cycling Legends podcast, powered by vivlavello.cc. Hello, I'm Gary Fairley, and this is the interview show from the Cycling Legends podcast, powered by vivlavello.cc. Back in March, I spoke to Israel Premier Tech rider Claire Steeles, who'd had an intense start to her debut World Tour season, and in an interview, very much looking forward to see what the rest of the season held for her. Fast forward seven months and I caught up with Claire again just last week and over the next 55 minutes or so you'll hear her reflect upon a season that has included two Grand Tours, her first pro win at Revolta and ended with her signing a three-year contract with Movistar from 2024. I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did talking to Claire and I think that probably comes across um, in my own questioning but thank you to Claire for coming back to the Cycling Legends podcast um, and yeah I'll speak to you on the other side. Now, joining me from the uh, the sunny... Hi, thanks for having me back. It's really good to see you. Um, it's just, it's been such a long time. And we were chatting just before we started recording that it was a, it was the, a few days after Trofeo Oro in Euro um, back in March... Um, yeah. which was, I think it would already been a, f- a fairly hectic start to the season at that point. I think you had about 15 days tra- uh, racing in your legs. Um, and looking at the stats, you only had another 60, uh, another 49 days or so um, of racing to go yeah. after that. So it's, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a mad um, first world tour season for you, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's been, um, I've definitely gained a lot of experience. <laughs> um <laughs> And a lot of race kilometers. So, um, but I mean, I can't complain really. It, it's been brilliant. Um, it's it's one of the things. Just just chatting to you, just you seem to smile all the time when you're when you're talking about about racing. And I remember um, before we spoke the last time, I was doing my my research on, on borderline stalking um, on Instagram <laughs> and stuff. And, and I think this time last year, you'd posted something along the lines of, uh, you know with that Israel Premier Tech jersey and saying, you know, that this mad adventure continues. Um, and yeah, at the end of this season, um, you know, you're, you're, this mad adventure appears to have gotten out of hand as, yeah. as, you, as you prepare to go to Movistar next season. Yeah, how has this happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels very much, um, yeah, talking to sort of, friends who I've known for a long time and and know me sort of pre-cycling it's really this sort of I started as a bit of a a laugh and a bit of a a bit of a joke and you know you just started cycling for something to do and then it's just sort of snowballed really into into now into yeah riding for Movistar next year and, and for the next three years so it's yeah, it's a, it's been a, um, an interesting journey. 
it's it's has been it's been a, a great journey to watch as a fan and obviously haven't haven't spoken back in March. Paid to get a particular interest um, to just how things have gone during the season. Um, one thing that stuck out to me is I mentioned it at the start that you'd, you'd done fifteen days of racing, and um, by the time we spoke and we were saying that it was a really intense start to the, I mean, this was March. Um, mm-hmm. you, you did sixty four days racing out of. 110 days that the Israel Premier Tech Roland did. Um, now, by way of um, context, Demi Vollering did 47 days. Lotte Kapeki did 40. On the men's side, Taddy Pogacar did 49. Okay, you got injured. Um, you're only three days short of Jonas Vingegaard. Um, and Wout Van Aert did 55 days racing. You didn't, didn't feel like an intense season. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think at one point, probably August time, I I, I was talking with a friend and, and we worked out, I, I'd only spent, I don't know, sort of 60 days in my home at that point in the, the season. So it very much felt like a, a sort of a baptism of fire, I'd say, but not necessarily in a negative way. I mean, I, I was in a fortunate position to be given so many incredible opportunities to do so many incredible races and in a lot of them to be there in a position as a leader, which felt like a a huge honour and yes, elements of pressure, but just, you know, to, to be in that position, yes, it is exhausting, but you just have to, to be a sponge essentially and just absorb every opportunity, everything that you can learn from every race. And, you know, admittedly by the end and, and probably sort of after the tour, I I would say I sort of fell off a cliff in terms of energy levels. Um, and I just really was sort of playing catch up in terms of trying to sort of recover. Um, and at that point it was probably a bit too late, but I, I didn't want to say no to the races necessarily. I, I didn't want to to leave the team short. I didn't want to to leave the team in a position where I didn't feel like I was doing my job and my responsibility. So definitely very intense. And maybe I would have had better results if I had, you know, hadn't raced as much and I had more time to recover and, and some more time to train. Um you know, little things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, all of the experiences that I managed to to gain and absorb and and the engine I managed to build in, in terms of, you know, gaining that fitness from racing, that will only sort of stand me in good stead going forward. And, you know, the, you can't change how the season has gone. So all I can do is take every positive from it and and sort of carry that forward. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about you know the, the big one, the uh, the uh, the win at Revolt uh, Revolt in a second. Um, but for, from a fan's perspective, we could kind of see it building. Um, I mean, I, I we chatted um after Trophy Oro. That'd been a race where, particularly, I'd seen you in the the, the chase group, the the, the trek. Uh, mm-hmm. as they were then. Um, Gaia Rialini and Amanda Spratt, the one two were you know forty five seconds were up there. and yet there's Claire Claire's driving the chase group and you know and being in part of the, the, the main group that finished um you know is the the bunch behind them. Um mm-hmm. and you saw you know the top ten Alfredo Binder 
Um, yeah. And then Revolta came. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you sold after attacking on the final climb on the, the, the Aragal. Um, and that was about 30k out. Now, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of looking slightly disbelieving at that. Yeah, I, I very. I bet so before then I I was doing um the Ardennes and I crashed in flesh and then I felt awful at Liège and I had a really bad cold and a flu and I yeah. just felt horrendous. And on the radio, Sergey, our sports director, was like, How are you doing? And I said, So I could probably finish, but I won't do very well. And he was like, get in the car because you have Revolta coming up and I think I think you could do well. So yeah. Let's play the long game. Um, so then I sort of went to Revolta with this. Oh, you got in the car at the age because you wanted to do well here. So it has to sort of, you know, we're coming here with a plan, with a clear objective. We have to do everything we can to to see it through. And then when I attacked on the climb, I was kind of hoping somebody would come with me. Um, but it seems to be a bit of a trend or a bit of a theme that if I, I'll attack and everyone's like, nah, she'll she'll blow up or <laughs> we'll catch her or no one really seems to come with me. Um, which, you know, in that situation, as it worked out, wasn't wasn't a bad thing at all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, did the descent and then it felt like a long way out to the finish. Um, but, you know, at that point, you just sort of committed and if you've made a move like that and you've committed you have to just keep going and, and hope it pays off which it did yeah uh, but when you make a move I, mean, I have i have no frame of reference for for that attacking on you know the final climb um you think you'll be chased by clara Coppenburn the previous year when it was <laughs> um yeah you know when when you go does there come that you know, do you have that doubt in your mind like it was chris boardman spoke about doing the a time trial of the hour or something you know <laughs> something minimal like the hour record. You know, the question is, you know, can I maintain this pace to the end? And if the answer is yes, you're not going hard enough. Or and if the answer is no, you've gone off to it. The answer is it depends. I mean, yeah. Does stuff like that go through your mind when you're alone in the road and she's um, finish like? I mean, I I really enjoy that type of effort and sort of physiologically, I I'm that's probably my strength. So in my mind, once I'm away, if I've managed to do a relatively explosive by my standards move to get away, then once I'm sort of down the descent and sort of out of danger, so to speak, that that level of effort I quite enjoy. And if you can just sit and just try and tick off the kilometers and keep it going and ride on that edge a lot. And right. I, I've done a lot of training with my coach over the years where we have days where we don't use power meter and I just have to ride at what I think the power is. And I really believe that sort of in-depth knowledge and understanding of your body really pays dividends in that sort of situation. That that almost sounds counter to the, the received <laughs> wisdom of you're going to set at 400 watts or, <laughs> for however long and actually just, you know, it's almost yeah obvious, wasn't it it's riding on fuel yeah yeah well yeah I, I i thinking back to that time in the race i i wasn't looking at my power meter at all i was just thinking because because otherwise then you're 
either controlled by the power meter or you're like, well, I need to ride it. Let's say 400 watts for argument's sake because the number you've said, I can assure you it wouldn't have been. But um, <laughs> well, 50, obviously, no. Um, but, you know, maybe you could go harder. Maybe, you know, the the power targets holding you back. So I think it's really important to to have an understanding of your body in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, it was a, a race in Spain, and Spain was, you know, I think was, was particularly kind to you. And that's no surprise considering mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're based in, in Mallorca. We had that mad, again, it's the, the intensity of the, the women's world to, or the, the pro um, circuit at that time of the year in April, May, where we had the, we had the Vuelta, we had Zulia, we had uh, Burgos. Um, then there's, you, you were on the podium at Durango, Durango. Um, yeah I had to fight to get into that race <laughs> <laughs> because I had done obviously I'd done you know as you said quite a few race days at that point already and then Revolta and then Vuelta and then I think we had like two days off or three days off and it was Julia and I was supposed to do the Navarra race and I I, I said you know maybe I just sit in the car like maybe I, I don't do this one um, and then I, I said, but I really want to do Durango and okay, but why? And I said, oh, it's just, it's a really special race for me. I think the first year I was racing, when I was racing for Sapella, it was it, those first few races. And obviously it was, um, 2020, so we'd come out of lockdown and those first few races, I it was just terrified. And I just thought, what an earth am I doing? Like, how am I in this position? And the Durango was the first time that I thought, I can do this. Like, it's going to be hard and there are going to be lots of ups and downs, but I can do this. And so it has always been sort of a, I don't know, a bit of a sentimental old woman, I guess, but it's always been quite a special race for me in, right. in terms of that. Um, and it's those steep climbs that I really enjoy. Not too long, but nice and steep and punchy and, and it's a course that I'm familiar with. In a year when I was doing, I would say 80% of the races for the first time, it, it felt nice to, to be on, you know, home soil, so to speak. Um, so yeah, so then to finish on the podium felt felt great. Yeah. Um, just pick up on that. You said you're doing 80% of the races for the first time. And you said at the start that you, you learned a lot um, you know, yeah, in, in your first year of the world tour. Um, I mean, what what, what is that learning curve feels like? I mean, you pitched up in Australia, um, for uh, I was the Cadell Evans and all the, the races that, that happened yeah. around then. I mean, did you know coming from Sopella, do you feel like you're you know out your depth or or is it just a this is a natural progression of what I'm doing? I'm very much out of my depth, I would say. I'm a I'm like many people, particularly many females, I feel like I, I'm very aware of it, sort of an imposter syndrome, so to speak, and sort of, a, I'm not really sure, I, not that I deserve to be there, but like, you know, like, like, you know, we said before we started recording, just like a, I can't believe this is happening sort of thing, but I'm here, and I've worked bloody hard to be here, so I'm, I'm going to try and own it as much as <laughs> as much as I can um and yeah so like you know started in tour down under and 
and that was obviously all completely new. Then I went to UAE and that was new. So all of these new experiences, um, new races, new courses, I was learning a lot from everyone around me. Um, so all of the other riders, you know, we, we had a joke in the team that I was on a world tour team, but I'd never raced in Belgium because I'd done all of my racing in Spain. So yeah. they were like, how are you here? And you've never, you know, you, you haven't ever raced on the cobbles. And I was like, well, first time for everything, I suppose. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I said, you can't go back and change that. So you just have to to go into it as optimistic and as prepared as possible. So Velo Viewer became my best friend. Right. <laughs> the the program that we used to, to look at everything. Yeah. And then, and you know, talking to teammates, learning from teammates, getting advice, whether it was on specific elements of the course or specific racing tactics or or things that they tried in the past that hadn't worked, you know, just learning from everyone, learning and listening as as much as possible. And and what were there those inside the peloton who maybe gave you the vibe that maybe you didn't deserve to be there? Uh, I don't don't need you to name names, you know, but I'm like, well, she no, <laughs> um, no. Probably not really. Probably if I felt that at any point, I would say that was a, a reflection of my own feelings of maybe right. I don't just be, you know, nobody outwardly was like, oh, like what are you doing here? You don't deserve it. Um, you're such a chopper type thing. Um, no, nobody had said that. And I'm probably a little bit, not oblivious to, to other people, but I, I don't necessarily hold much weight to someone's, I don't know, that sounds awful, but you know, I, I'm my own worst critic. I don't need, right. <laughs> I don't need <laughs> opinions or, or vibes or feelings from anybody else to feel like I don't deserve to be there. So yeah, for me, it's just about focusing on how I feel about myself and trying to learn and try and prove to myself that I deserve to be there. Yeah. When we when we first spoke, you mentioned that Israel Premier Tech Roland was a developing um, team, and, and what what was the the you know the, the strategy, or the, the the goal for the for the team at the, at the start of the season? Um, I mean, I guess it's to to develop riders individually, but also to to develop the team as a whole, and you know, I think this year there were only three original riders from the the previous team so it was a very new dynamic um not many people had even raced together before on on other teams yeah. so you know it was everyone was forming new friendships and new relationships and new working relationships and ultimately the the aim of you know as any team i assume is is to be as successful as possible but also to to build a framework and an environment where the team can continue to develop rather than have a, a successful year, try to build that, that longevity really. Yeah. One of the big things I know is when I, when I was, when I was crunching the numbers, when I was on pro cycling stats, um, was it that you and uh, Tamara Dronova, um, pretty much, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're teammate, but um, yeah. pretty much in fact, got almost exactly fifty percent of the team's UCI points. Um, for the, and that is you know that's the difference between um, you know stay, staying up and being relegated in terms of world tour things. I mean, was you know is that a driver when you 
you, know, you you line up on the start line that you know we got to get some points in the bank here and you know, you know that's part of the team's longevity as well you know, to, to yeah absolutely. absolutely I think and you know in terms of part of the team's longevity I think some people probably had it in the the very backs of their mind but I don't think you can go into a race thinking yeah. well, we need points necessarily and we we didn't ever really have the tactic of let's try and get five in the top 20 because that would get us the most points because you know it's a sprint and there are faster riders here than us so we're never going to win so let's try and get as many numbers in the top 20 as possible to play the numbers game that was never our strategy yeah. our strategy was always to try to have an individual getting the best performance possible which I think for me that that's the purest form of racing and that's the purest spirit of racing rather than sort of playing the numbers game yeah <clears throat> um but I you know I think it's something that everyone need not not every team needs to be mindful of it because obviously some teams are incredibly successful and pick up points not easily but with relative ease compared to to other teams um but no it wasn't ever something that was a you know we didn't sit in the bus and be like you 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 and you you all need to come in the in the top 20 because we yeah, need points spreadsheet, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was never about that it and I think a lot of riders and a lot of staff have been asked about it in various interviews and everyone has just sort of said, you know, like it isn't, it isn't something that's really a, a main focus to us. Yeah. It's about getting that that individual performance in the in the each race. Cool. Now you you spoke about you know, Spanish roads and racing at home, um, but you also raced in the UK twice this year. Um, <laughs> second second in the nationals. Yeah, um, that looked like yes. a that was, oh, that was a fun day out. Quite a day out, yeah. <laughs> That, that was in red car yeah. wasn't it um, yeah i love that course um i did that a few years ago well quite a few years ago now um and i didn't have a great day out um completely my own fault i kicked my turbo trainer after finishing my warm-up and snapped my cleat and did the whole race with one foot and like clicked in and the other one just like floating <laughs> on the pedal so i, I went into it thinking <laughs> I really am such a chopper but I was like you know there's no way it can be as bad as that so <laughs> um and yeah and it was just a, a really fun like I say fun day out I it's a very different dynamic everyone's there on their own without you know the support of of teammates and I just wanted to go out and race it hard and it really attack the, the course and attack the circuit that was in my mind, that was the best strategy and the best tactic for for the type of rider that I am. And ultimately, I think it it paid off. So, you know, first would have been great, but second isn't terrible, and I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, well, you were second to Pfeiffer George is no bad thing. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, of all the riders to be second to, she's yeah. not a bad one, is she? Yeah, and uh, Anna Henderson <laughs> in the bronze medal position. So yeah, it looked like a good day. I mean, we. I can't remember which lap it was, but you you attacked and just strung everything out. And at, at yeah. that point, the, you know, the, the race was on, but that was almost what, you know, as, a, as a, an outside observer, it's almost like a kind of trademark move that as the season wore on, as, as you say, we, we not kind of came to expect, but we're not surprised by that. You just, right, we're going to race here. We're going to 
you're, yeah, you're going to go for I, this. I think in that, particularly in the nationals as well, like, it was like, it was always going to be a very attritional race just in, in terms of the, the, the dynamic and yeah. the teams and the numbers and all that sort of thing. And I'm probably quite impatient. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, um, a, a very good friend of mine, Natalie Grinser was racing and we had a, a vague strategy between the two of us, but also we just wanted to go out and have a, have a fun day out really and, and just enjoy racing and then, you know, go out for lunch afterwards and whatever. And, um, then it did sort of get to the point and we were like, okay, like we need to do something now because otherwise it's, you know, the laps tick round and the group still stays relatively big. Um, and I, I love those those little pictures of, of, of the climbs and it's there's something really grippy about racing in the UK and, yeah, just why not? <laughs> <laughs> when you say grippy, you mean you feel like you've got a real, real flat all the time oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's just something a bit I don't know if tough is the right word but it's it, there's something you know you you need a bit more grit I think when you're racing in the UK than if you're or a different type of grit I should say than when you're racing on the Spanish roads you know over yeah. here it, it, it's hot and, and that can be equally as draining but when it feels like you're sort of cycling on velcro that's a different type of of grit required yeah um, and another very different kind of road was uh, in the UK again was at the World Championships um, yes. in Glasgow. I mean, again, a complete, not just a completely different type of racing, obviously racing for, for Team GB. And that's interesting. You said that the Nationals, everybody's on their own and everybody's, you know, fighting against you. How do you come together as, you know, as a unit where you get yourself, the Banana Henderson, or Pfeiffer Georgie, Lizzie Dagnan, you know, people you're trying to beat you're back in yeah. the red car. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a bit of a strange one. And obviously it was my first time racing for GB and, and, and to do it in a world championship, essentially at home, um, was, you know, an amazing and incredible experience um, and an incredible opportunity. And I was very much there, like I say, to, to learn and just, take advice from the girls and and just sort of see how it all kind of worked as well in previous sports I have been in that situation where you know on, on a Saturday you play as a team and then I don't know the next week you're going to do a county or an eastern England race or uh match so you know I'm used to that sort of change in dynamic and change in personnel in a, a team but yeah this was very much like I'm just gonna sit and and watch and observe and I was fortunate enough to share a room with Lizzie Dignan so I mean what a great person to to room with and and learn from and pick her brains about cycling and life and just somebody to to get to know yeah it was a great experience and the race didn't quite go to plan for me um I had a puncture straight into the circuit and on that type of race it was bye bye race <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I kept sort of going and then was was in a group with a, a couple of teammates from israel so that was just nice to have a roll around and a little bit of a chat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was going to ask you what you thought of the circuit but if you if it wasn't the hammer and tongs then you maybe had a slightly different perspective yeah i mean to be honest i, I mean i thought the circuit was great and i would have loved to be racing it so to right. speak than just sort of 
out of the the pointy end of the race um but you can't you can't take away from the experience like the crowds were incredible and yeah it was just a wonderful wonderful experience and my mum and dad were there and that was really special yeah it made it was a great event i was i was in for the women's race um it was the only event i managed to get to um during the championships and it was just incredible and just yeah the streets um, were just lined and and everyone got really behind it and it, yeah it was just wonderful yeah um another race obviously that would be remiss not to talk about was the tour de france farm ah yes which oh, sure. it was it was a it was a it wasn't quite a dream, but it just seemed to be so far in the distance when we first spoke. Um, yeah. You know, what, what, what were your your uh, impressions of that? It was just a giant yellow circus. It was just <laughs> in just bizarre, just in in like a really wonderful way. Um, it was great to be there, and. I I had done a stint of training at altitude and I felt this is going to be a good race and it just wasn't <laughs> <laughs> just sort of like performance wise I was, I was like oh <laughs> hi legs where have you disappeared to um and also you know everyone else was there on their a game and if you are not above and beyond where you know your a game is and your level is you're just not in the mix at all and it became apparent quite quickly that my legs were were not where I wanted them to be so not only was I not where I wanted to be but everyone around me was was up at the you know really delivering so then it was just a case of just still just try and enjoy this experience and be in it and you know to do the Tour de France Femme is, it, oh, it was in a electric environment, just an incredible, crazy experience. And it, it, like I say, just a circus, all of like the media around it and the hype and all of the local towns getting behind and the crowds and, and I had a day in the break. And yeah, yeah it was ju- just, it's something that will stay with me forever. I'm actually looking on the, I'm in my lounge and on the wall I have a like a collage of photos from just all from the tour and it was yeah. There's one image that springs to mind. There's a coming across the tourmalade, um and there's the the Union Jack and there's a the, I think the, the first one that appears of you. There's one of Lizzie Dagnan as well. It just looked yeah. It's it's I one mean, of the rare occasions where you're jealous of the riders. Yeah. <laughs> Going over the tourmalade. The the flag belongs to my friend. So right. who who I met, she well, she lives in the mainland now, but she we met here and she's an American lady called Julie and she ordered the the Union Jack flag so she would could come to the tourmalade. And the day before she came to see me at the hotel and dropped off some peanut butter and some coffee for me, was like, I'll see you, I'll see you tomorrow on on the climb. And I <laughs> I wasn't loving life <laughs> at that point. <laughs> Play on. Yeah, and then I, I just heard her like screaming, Venga, 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 and saw this flag, and it just, it really lifted. And, and luckily, she had positioned herself next to our photographer. Right. And then I remember, you know, got back and got back in the bus and showered and whatever. And, and in our group, she had posted that photo. 
and it was just it, yeah it was just wonderful and I've seen so many people with that photo with the flag and every time I see it I say Julie your flag's out again <laughs> but yeah it was I mean to do the tourmalade was something special yeah yeah next year up the ways mm, yeah on that <laughs> Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about <laughs> that um, in a bit. Um, there was one thing about the, the, the Tour de France farm this year. The, the stage to Rodez um, was 177 kilometres, which was the longest, um, I think, that any women's bike race had been at that point, at least in the modern yeah. Um Are the races long enough? Are the stages long enough? I think so. I mean, yeah. it, on that stage, um, that was the stage where the, the break had... God, like, like an hour <laughs> not quite but they had so much time and actually in in the bunch it was a bit so so we got 170k in it <laughs> and i know and correct me if i'm wrong but i'm not or somebody may correct me if i'm wrong when they hear this but i don't think there are many riders in the bunch who race to sit and roll around in a bunch nice and casual for 150k yeah it's, it's a big long view yeah yeah and certainly for me the more aggress aggressive more attacking racing is so much more exciting and i think i mean 150 160k it, it's a good distance it's a it's a good challenge but i don't think it necessarily needs to be any longer if anything maybe potentially shorter stages but more stages right that, that's where i was going with that one because obviously there's yeah the, just the schools of thought that you know, the, you know the, the tour de france farm should be three weeks long like the men's race and yet you know your teams are still smaller and, and so yeah. on. You know, do we yeah, just definitely. forget about the logistics of that happening not just from a race perspective but from a from a rider and a team perspective yeah well, from a personnel perspective as well you know there are Currently, there there aren't enough world tour teams to fill, um, like you know the tour. There are and there are smaller teams that that get places in in the world tour races and the, and the tours, and you know those riders are still working, potentially. Yeah. There yeah. are potentially riders on world tour teams who still have part time jobs. The staff on the world tour teams might not be full time. They might be you know in and out. Teams might not have the budget to pay for the staff for a three three week tour, and that's you know it's exhausting for the riders, but also for the staff as well. You know the swaniers are up at the crack of dawn, making rice cakes, preparing your breakfast box, so to be out for so every rider gets what they want. Then they're making food for in the race, preparing the drinks. You know it, it's a long day for them, and then after the the race or after the stage you then got massages and you know seven riders as it stands on on a world tour team you know if you only have <clears throat> sorry in a in a long tour if you only have two or three swannies that's a lot of work at the end of the day and then you know some riders aren't probably aren't going to bed until 10 11 o'clock at night and I, I think it is growing but I think we need to just keep it at a nice steady rate and actually it might not necessarily be required to ever go over sort of two weeks potentially, you know, but even, but maybe shorter stages and more stages so that then, 
you you have a bit more recovery time for everyone between the days or introducing a rest day or, or you know something along those lines yeah, this is the, uh, Christian Prudhomme calls it the Netflix generation, where even the men's tour has shorter, punchier stages. Yeah, you know, it's, it's entertainment. Rather, rather than, I always feel bad, particularly talking to professional cyclists about entertainment, because you're the one slogging your guts and I'm the one at home being entertained. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it, this, if it wasn't entertaining, then the, there wouldn't be the sponsors and people yeah. wouldn't watch it. And, it, you know, it, it, it's no different to any other sport, I don't think, in terms of... Yeah entertainment and you know people watch it because because it's a spectacle because it, it's great to see and it's entertaining yeah and it's and, and very much is. so yeah maybe i won't feel so bad for, for thinking mm-hmm. yeah ride faster ride up bigger hills do more of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> do, do them backwards do it do it in gravel yeah. <laughs> um one of the things that you, the, the, the Tour de France farm, there were some issues, but one of the big things this season has been around safety. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the race in particular is the, the, the Tour Feminine International, the Pyrenees, at which you crashed in stage two, which um, mm. after yeah. stage one, you faced traffic on the, on the course. There were no barriers on a, on a town centre, which still fills me with horror when I think about it. Stage mm. two was neutralised, um, and yet that just seemed to cause more confusion and chaos as is yeah it is was a, discovered um, it's a it's a big shame because it was you know it was a beautiful course and it had potential to well it, well it was a great race but it had potential to be even greater um and on the first day um one of the riders in in the front group um from human powered health said to me that their Swanio was at the finish and they had said to the team car, by the way, it's open, like to traffic. So they had obviously relayed the message to her and, and she was telling, you know, people in the group, by the way, there are cars parked on that side of the road, there are cars parked on that side of the road, and it's open to the traffic, like the finishing circuit. And then and you you think, oh, okay, but you know, it's probably like a rolling road closure. It'll be closed when we get there. No. So you, we went through and we did this circuit and oncoming traffic, pedestrians walking out, cars traveling in the same direction as us. And it was, oh, it, it was chaos to say the least. And then you cross the finish line and then obviously, and normally you then turn and come back around and find, you know, your, your Swanee for your recovery. But then the group was just coming through the group behind to do their finishing lap. And it, it just, it was not particularly well marshaled in in that respect and then obviously all of the teams spoke and then the the next day because throughout the race as well there'd been situations where the road wasn't closed properly and it there were you know cars parked on the side of the road and that sort of thing and they I think they initially said they were going to neutralize the first sort of 20 kilometers because they couldn't guarantee this sort of road security and then it was up to the riders to make a decision. And I, I think that's quite difficult because you had smaller teams there, sort of continental teams with riders who are looking for an opportunity to get a great result, to potentially move up to a world tour team. World tour teams who are looking for points, as you know, as we spoke about earlier, you know, riders who are looking to, to win the race. There are, you know, so many people there with 
different motivations and then obviously in the back of everyone's mind is the safety element um and we were talking you know amongst the riders in the in the the bunch you know should we be doing this should we not be doing this what's the best decision who needs to say something I think we all need to speak up together and we went through one village and it's like an oil tanker on the side of the road and Anna Henderson and I were talking and we were like this is ridiculous and then we went over a um like flyover over a motorway and it was just the cars were coming off the motorway and they were just oh. all like all around the roundabout and I think I can't remember who it was but somebody was like enough like we're stopping and we all stopped and and spoke to the organizers and then they said that we have to make a decision we either stop the race or we self-neutralize they couldn't officially neutralize the race so we could self-neutralize and then ride to the bottom of the climb and then go up the climb and essentially race up the climb which then it's sort of a it just becomes like a, a hill climb yeah trial um and then tactically that changes the race for everybody but anyway that was the joint decision that we all came to but i mean it, anna and i were chatting going at one of the climbs and we were like we're being dropped like this isn't neutralized and as we were getting closer and closer to to the racing if you like teams were protecting their leaders they were sort of being mindful of positions um and then sort of maybe 10 12 kilometers out i had quite a bad crash i would say it wasn't because of the open roads but the open roads certainly didn't help the situation you know the feeling in the bunch was very nervous we were pinched in because of traffic parked on the side of the road yeah. it wasn't cleared. you know it's not like i was hit by a moving car essentially but you know 2k before there was a car coming on from a slip road onto the main road that we were racing on and all the riders had to put their hands out to stop the car so no i wasn't hit by a car coming on but it you know i think it it certainly contributed um and yeah and that that was my my race over obviously but um then that evening teams had to decide are we going to race or we're not going to race are we going to turn up or we not um and i you know as it turned out that they cancelled the race the last day anyway yeah i i think did did the team pull everyone from the race before the the race itself was cancelled yeah, yeah so yeah. as a team we we discussed it um and i you know we we were then five riders and i said well i i won't vote but everyone just yeah. make a decision. You had a vested interest and a sore face at that point. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like my face out here. And I was like, I won't vote. How about we just sort of, everyone votes. There's no judgment. There's no opinion either way, but everyone makes a decision what they want to do. And then as a team, we agreed that we will take our majority vote forward into what we are going to do as a team. Um, and that, because we're just five, we will have a majority of race or not race um and everyone voted to to not race and then all of the teams essentially said they weren't going to race eventually anyway so i mean it, it's it's a shame but I, I think it's for the best it was for the best yeah yeah i mean i think audrey cordon rago i think was the uh, a big spokesperson you're talking about human power yeah. and health, uh, and i think audrey said after uh, perhaps after during stage two that 
Um, you know, the, the three things that women's cycling needs are one safety, two equality of opportunity, and then we'll mm. talk about money. Um, yeah. Exactly. I was like, going to say, do you, do you agree with that? No, oh, give me the money. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the equality and the opportunity and the prize money is obviously important, but we can't do it if we're not safe. So the safety has to come first, completely. It's, I mean, the, the, the Tour Feminine, the Pyrenees, was a, you know, a very visible case in point. I mean, but is there a... You know, do do you see safety as being a major issue at a lot of races, or um, is it something that you can you yet take it for granted in, in most races? Um, occasionally, um, and this isn't anything against racing in France, but occasionally in in France, I would say there's a more flexible approach to road closures, um, sort of a little bit reminiscent of like the. Oh, I forgot what it's called, but the racing in the UK where they only close, but they only used to close like half of the road. Right. Um, so, or, you know, when there are still cars parked on the side of the road, you wouldn't, but very much a national level race, not something you would expect from, uh, a, you know, UCI or, or world tour race. Um, but generally I would say things are, are, are pretty good and are pretty safe. It isn't, like you say, the Pyrenees race was something that was very, very clear. Um, and there have been, I think, individual situations rather than, you know, whole races organised badly on, on the whole. Yeah. But um, generally, I, I feel quite safe, I would say. Good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> right. We've we've kind of looked over you know, a big part of the 2023 season, but obviously we want to talk about 2024 and Movie star, baby. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, come on, I, I, I joked before we started. Did, did Sebastian Unzu just phone you up and say, Anna Meek van Vluten's left? Can you help us, Claire? Um, I mean, I, I and I said, oh, it was kind of a bit like that. But I mean, obviously, there there is no replacing somebody like yeah. that. And <laughs> I I am very very aware that I am not a replacement for her. Um, <laughs> and I'm not even a, going to attempt to be a replacement for her. Um, but it was sort of a case of uh, I was in the, the middle of a race in the summer and received a, a message from Sebastian. And I was sat at dinner with two of my teammates. Um, and it was, I think we still had a couple of stages left to go of the race. And I, <laughs> they were like, You're right. <laughs> obviously I always joke that I suffer with facial leakage where my feelings just fall out of my face I can't control what's happening good or bad <laughs> it's like I won't quite repeat what I said because it wasn't the cleanest language but along the lines of golly gosh you'll never guess who's just sent me a message <laughs> um and one of my teammates said she was like well you are the the revelation of 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 like our team in terms of the like whenever you do something good people are like oh let's do it she's come from nowhere and, and she was like I mean it's the summer now like they need to let that go <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah we had a little joke about that and I then sort of replied a few days later and was like yeah I'm, I'm open to talking I I don't have a contract for next year and 
and yeah let, let's sort of go from there and then yeah like I say then it it sort of went from there um and now I'm here with a three-year contract that's just incredible and you're, yeah. you're reunited with your um old Sopella buddy um Sarah Martin yeah 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 that would be very nice to be back racing with her both, both of you naturals on camera when that the announcement was made yeah. on the social media feeds <laughs> <laughs> nothing I love more than acting on social media <laughs> especially in Spanish <laughs> I'll spare your blushes, but but listeners, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you 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 um you've come from you're you're going from Israel Premier Tech as being you know, a GC person, a climber. Um, you're going to be working with Fletcher Mackay, Liana Lippert. Um, I know it's mad. <laughs> and, and yet, the, you know, there will. Be, it looks like you know, there, there might be situations where they're going to be working for you, which. I mean, depending on you, I mean, I don't know if you've discussed your role on the team, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think initially, I mean, three years is a long time, and and that's it's, it's an incredible opportunity at my age, let's just say, um, and I think is re reflective of the confidence that they have in my ability to continue to develop, and it's really nice that they're looking at my cycling age if you like as opposed to my actual age um but you know also they have proven experience working with a, a rider in their mid to late 30s and I think I, st I do still have a lot of room for improvement and a lot of room for development um and and yeah but you know sort of initially the first year will be finding my feet in that environment Yes, it, I'm moving from a world tour team to another world tour team, but I I think everybody would agree it's a it is a step up and yeah. it is a development, and it, you know it's just sort of again learning and and learning a different way of working and different roles and different responsibilities and and supporting the team as much as possible and doing my job whatever that will be. Um, so from speaking to them, it. It, I will be doing more stage racing than one day racing. And, you know, given the the riders that they have on the team as a whole, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that they have a fantastic squad for those sort of one day classic style races. There's, they don't need to put me into those races and then can sort of save me and my energy for those longer tours, which is which is what I enjoy, really. Yeah, um, interesting. The movie star only raced ninety days last season, so you you're looking forward to your rest then. Yeah, so they, <laughs> they've sent me a sort of a proposed calendar, and I was like, oh, what will I do with the other half of the year? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they've they've been a we we had camp like a sort of media camp a little while a few weeks ago, and there were a lot of chat of well, there was a lot of chat of so you've done a lot of race days. <laughs> You must certainly have a, a big engine, so yeah, <laughs> hoping to do a few less next year, perhaps. Movie star retirement home for the for the the senior riders. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> One more year of sixty four, sixty five race days, and I think I'll be done. <laughs> um, what what do you have any hopes or expectations for next season? 
I just in definitely improve and whether that's it could be anything tactically um in terms of sort of race preparation on on a, on a personal level things that I can do um you know with with fewer race days with more time I can get back in the gym and focus on that sort of stuff try and get some some better results um be useful to the team in terms of working for the people just continue to grow in development and really that's I, I don't really like to say oh, I want to you know a top five a podium a, a top 10 or whatever like because there are only so many things you can control so I mean yeah. obviously yeah that would be great but as long as I'm continuing to develop and become a better rider and a better racer and I'm still learning and I'll be I'll be pretty happy no massive sort of um results wise goals for next year but maybe at the end of three years to to have some nice results under my belt would be would be good <laughs> I, I don't think anybody could could stay fairer than that Claire no listeners um to our sister show the uh, the feed zone know that we normally do recommendations um at the end of each of these shows now I'm not going to put you on the spot for this but I want to talk to you about Ooh. peanut I want to talk to you about peanut butter Oh, <laughs> talk to me. It's the yeah. best food ever. Sell it to us. Um, Sell it you, to you. You, you, seem, you seem to be a, a, quite, a, quite a big proponent of the old peanut butter. I, I, ju I just think it's just the greatest thing in the world. So, um, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, so as a, as a very small child, I fell in love with peanut butter peanut butter and jam sandwiches actually oh, it was banana in our house yeah oh and i had them every day for school for school lunch from i would say reception so like four years old until i was maybe 16 so i was one of the few people at, at my secondary school who was still having a packed lunch and i and i would also have a cooked lunch as well because i've always had a very healthy appetite <laughs> and by healthy i mean large and um i i I just always loved it and continue now every morning without fail. I have peanut butter. It's on, it's my snack. Big fan of Pippa Nut. Can't get it over in Spain. Um, and I have <laughs> harassed them repeatedly to see if they will send it and they will not. Um, but my parents luckily <laughs> buy it. And when they come over, half of their luggage is taken up with peanut butter and sometimes they ship it over um and they do an advent calendar that's like the mini um like the cupcakes with the chocolate oh, on top okay. yeah so i've already ordered that for advent <laughs> <laughs> um and also manny life as well they they also make an excellent peanut butter um and you can buy that on amazon and they do ship to Spain. <laughs> wow there you go so uh, but yeah pip and nut the sweet and salty is one of the greatest things in the world just it, with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the nutrition advice we expect from a world tour athlete, but I mean, but, but you've come to the right place with it, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I just it, it's just brilliant, and I, I have a jar always, always every, every race. I'll just pull out my my pip and nut, and just yeah, and it's my little present that I I give to people if 
if they if they're a fan as well then next time I go back to the UK I take orders and then I'll I'll come back and deliver it to my teammates but it's it's truly wonderful it's a, well <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sold um I will say it's come a long way since it was sun part smooth or crunchy and that was it so yeah I mean always crunchy always oh. that's I don't even think that's up for debate 100% always crunchy um but some part it just I don't want a bad mouth a peanut butter brown but it's not for me <laughs> sweeties yeah, yeah. showing our age now yeah sadly um Claire it has just been a joy to to talk to you about the season and about bike racing and just about everything and peanut butter and peanut uh, butter so, most importantly. <laughs> where if if people want to stalk you on social media where can people find you um probably instagram would be the the best place i'm not very good on it's not twitter anymore is it that's how bad i am on x um yeah i don't really use that other than to complain <laughs> that's, that's what the rest of us do um so yeah instagram and i believe it's c dot steals yeah at c steals is my instagram um but yeah that that is the the best place to find me i'm normally posting about peanut butter and riding in the mountains here and coffee that's... yeah well you're ticking all the boxes so yeah it sums up my life really <laughs> Claire, thank you so much um, for joining the, the Cycling Legends podcast. Once again, we'll, we'll leave you um, for, for a little while to bed into Movistar and your your, your new team and your, your new training regime. But we, we wish you well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. You've been listening to the interview show from the Cycling Legends podcast powered by vivlavello.cc. You can get in touch with the show, email us at cyclinglegendspodcast at gmail.com and you can also sign up for all our premium content, cyclinglegendspodcast.com.